there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men, we're at verse 2, devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church, and entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. For Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Our last verse. So there was much joy in that city. Father, we come to you again, and honestly, I, I don't think that we can pray enough, especially during these sorts of times where we examine and study and seek out your truth, your word, and this is just one of those moments where we need you desperately. Even those who have been regenerated by your Holy Spirit have enough flesh, an old man, old woman in them to create great frustration and issue and trouble, and then there's the whole demonic realm which seeks to damage, distract, destroy this word our understanding of it, our reception of it, our application of it, God. But I am so thankful that your spirit, the Holy Spirit, prevails over the flesh. It prevails over dark forces, God. May that be the way today that it happens. God, we're facing a very difficult subject today in your sovereignty. Um, it's clear in Scripture, but it is mysterious at the same time. It's profound and uh, even a bit confusing, I think, and I think that that's not because it is in its very nature, but our little finite minds have a hard time wrapping themselves around these great truths. God, I pray that your truth would prevail here today, that we would see you in a new light, and that our faith would become, uh, to a greater degree, more secure in you, that you would fortify our assurance when we look upon you and see who you are. That is the result. And so may it be so today, God. Help us in this time, Lord. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends, we're going to kind of work our way through these eight verses. Let's begin with verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution... And there arose on that day a great persecution, or actually, he approved of his execution. And uh, I got a little ahead of myself. He approved of his execution, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they, the believers, were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. And then it says, except the apostles. Let's begin to look at this here. Back in, eight, in uh, Acts chapter 7, 58, we just left that, 
passage last week. We just completed that whole section. But back in Acts 7.58, we learned that Saul was present at Stephen's execution. Uh, the text said that the witnesses that stoned Stephen to death laid their garments at his feet. So he was there. Uh, I've gone as far as to say that I believe he was also at the trial. And I mean, there's a little hearsay. That's a little... It's not clear, but I believe he was at the trial, and I also believe that he was present at one of the synagogues that originally turned against Stephen and, uh, and then drug him before the Sanhedrin. So I think that Saul, uh, an honest assessment when we look at the Scripture, I think that he was present at all of these things, but for certain he was present at Stephen's execution. There's no doubt about that. It's clear in the text. And he was present, and he gave approval to it, as the text says. Now, I like the way the, the NASB puts it. I don't read in the NASB very often, but I do like it. And it says that Saul was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. I think that's a, you know, a little more descriptive example of what was happening with Saul rather than he just approved you know, you're approved for a loan, you know, he just approved it. No, he was there giving the equivalent of a Roger Ebert two thumbs up, right? I mean, he was literally there, he was approving of it, he was in hearty agreement with what was playing out. In a way, his approval assured the witnesses, the false witnesses that were about to murder him, his approval assured them that they were on the right track, that they were on the right path. It would also appear that the stoning of Stephen really inspired Saul to take things to the next level. On the very day of Stephen's murder, it says in the text, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. Not a week later. Not the next day, not two months later, but right after his death on that very same day. Now, I suspect, because of how quickly the persecution arose, I suspect that the execution site became the launch point for that persecution. Stephen's killers and the Sanhedrin were still filled with rage... And we saw last week how they were enraged. They were still filled with this rage after killing Stephen and quickly put together a plan to go out Christian hunting. And verse 3 tells us that Saul, of our passage, chapter 8, 3, tells us that Saul, he spearheaded the operation. Uh, he was the guy that volunteered himself to, to go out and to lead this thing and to go house by house and to sort of oversee it. Later on, we see how he went to the Sanhedrin and pleaded that they would send him into Damascus and these other areas to arrest Christians there. And so this guy, man, he, he really was inspired to take this persecution to a whole new level at the death of Stephen. So often, violence and those things perpetuate a desire for more of that. You know, and that's exactly what happened. This guy is just beat to a pulp, killed by these rocks, getting hit by these rocks. And this doesn't create or generate any remorse. So, ooh, look at this. This is bloody. It's gory. It's horrible what we're doing. But a stronger appetite to annihilate more Christians. 
And I believe it happened, as it says in Scripture, on that very day. And I'm pretty certain that Saul was the guy that was overseeing that, spearheading that, helping to formulate that plan, putting it together, and definitely helping to execute it. And the result was that the church basically fled from Jerusalem. They got out of there, man. They hightailed. And they scattered throughout Judea and Samaria while the apostles remained in Jerusalem, which is interesting. Things certainly appeared to be out of control at this particular moment for the church. The Sanhedrin attacked the church, causing it to scatter and lose its strength in numbers. The Sanhedrin expelled the church from her normal meeting place, which was Solomon's portico. Those days of gathering in that amazing, you know, structure and place. It was like a colonnade, this beautiful place uh, in the temple grounds. The days of the church gathering there as this sort of mega church and coming and listening to the apostles, it's over. They persecuted the church, drove them from Jerusalem, drove them out of their meeting place. And so things seem to be at this moment spiraling out of control. May I submit to you that the persecution and scattering was more of God's plan than the Sanhedrin's? May I submit to you that God very intentionally used the ferocity and hatred of his son's enemies to achieve his purposes for the church at this juncture in history? Some of you could be saying to yourselves, well, God would never do such a thing to his son's bride. God would never willfully orchestrate, support, or use tactics like this against his son's own church because God is a God of love after all. Let me ask you this. Which is a greater example of love between these two scenarios? Limiting the gospel to one location and to one people group? or spreading the gospel throughout the entire region and beyond and amongst all people groups. Think about that for a moment. The church was camped out in Jerusalem. The fact that the church was in Jerusalem, the fact that there were people being saved there, the fact that there was ministry happening and all these beautiful things happening is an expression of God's love. But what is a greater example of God's love to take that and to move it outward so that it can influence more people, so that more people can hear the gospel, become saved, regenerate in the family of God, which is a greater example of God's love. But no, no, God's a God of love. He would never do, really. He would never do that. Listen to these truths. The Bible says... That God has willed, that God has willed to save folks from every uh, every tongue and tribe through the person and work of Jesus Christ, Revelation 5, 9. People of every color, people of every background, people of every language, not just Jerusalem and Hellenistic Jews. The Bible says that God's elect are vast in number, not 
tens of thousands, not 144,000, but too numerous to count, Revelation 7, 9. The Apostle John gets this vision, and there's so many people before the throne of God who have been saved by God, he can't count them. It would be futile to attempt it. The Bible says that God uses all things to achieve his purposes. Proverbs 16, 4. Don't think for a moment that these themes about God and his sovereignty and using things are just represented in one or two scriptures. They're riddled throughout it. I just don't have time to go through all of them. But he uses all things. And the human mind immediately says, not the evil things. He can't. He's holy. Well, he certainly doesn't have to let those things pass through his own fingers, does he? But he most certainly uses them for his cause. If he's sovereign, he's sovereign. Amen. The Bible says that, and we're hit on that right now, the Bible says that God is sovereign over all things. And this one I made sure to add more than one verse. Ephesians 1.11, Psalm 115.3, Job 42.2, Daniel 4.35, and there are more. He's sovereign over all things. He's in control over all things. There isn't something that slips past him. He is the ultimate goalie, but more so, he is the ultimate producer of what takes place. He has ordained. He is sovereign. He's in control. There's nothing that, that surprises him. There's nothing that he has to adapt to. He is sovereign over all things. And this one might be one of the most difficult. The Bible says that all things will redound for God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4.15. All things. All things. Now, if all of these things are true of God, then God must have ordained for the great persecution to happen. Why? So that he could use it to achieve his purposes. Now listen, this is very true of God. God will often use calamity to conquer complacency. This means that at times he may bring, God may bring trouble into the lives of people, calamity more particularly into the lives of his own people to stir them to action. Let me give you a great example of this, and there's so many in here in the scripture, but time doesn't permit for me to cover them all, but think of this example. And we covered this weeks ago. When the Israelites were in Egypt during the time of Joseph, they became very, very comfortable. They made lives for themselves and built families and so on. But God's plan and command was for them to take possession of the promised land. The promised land was God's true home for them. Egypt was only temporary. While living in comfort, that bred complacency. And what did God do? God installed a pharaoh in Egypt who did not like the Israelites. He did not like them. He was paranoid of the Israelites, seeing them as a potential threat. 
He sought to control them by means of slavery. Over time, God used that particular Pharaoh to change the Israelites' opinion of Egypt. They went from loving Egypt to wanting to leave. They began to cry out for someone to get them out of there, and hence God sent Moses. Moses brought them out, and then years later, Joshua led them to the place where they were supposed to be, the promised land. From this story, we can see how God ordained and used calamity i.e. the slavery and oppression of Pharaoh, to conquer the Israelites' complacency to get them to go to where they were supposed to be. I believe the same is true of the early church. The Christians had become very comfortable in Jerusalem while ministering to Jews. That led to complacency. Now keep in mind, I'm going to help to build a case for this, Keep in mind that the individual members of the church did not experience any persecution until after Stephen's death. Before his death, only the apostles and Stephen experienced any trouble. Who was drugged before the Sanhedrin numerous times? It wasn't you and me, the average Joe Christians. It was the apostles. It was the leaders. You might say that gospel ministry was pretty easy for the congregation in Jerusalem. Very fluid, not much resistance. In fact, the scriptures say repeatedly that the average Christians, the normal Christians, the normal folks who'd been saved by the Lord were enjoying the favor of all people. Well, ministry was amazing there. It was just so fertile and just amazing and the harvest was plenty and Man, you know, the interaction with the Christians and the, and the Jews and the non-believers, you know, and it was just this kind of beautiful mix, and, and the church was living out her calling, and the people were attracted to that, and it was just really, really cool. And so ministry was ideal, I think, in our finite minds. That's the kind of ministry I want. I don't want trouble. I don't want resistance. And they didn't experience any. Their leaders had a few bouts with it. But the average Christians were just able to just flow and do their ministry and speak truth and love others and take care of widows and do all of these amazing things. And there was no hesitation by folks around them, no resistance. Gospel ministry was pretty easy for the congregation. And easy and comfort perpetuate complacency every time the easier things are the more comfortable they become the easier it is to get set into those patterns and just hit cruise control and cruise alongside of jesus oh they're going over there jesus peaceful i know you just cruise You just cruise along doing your thing. You build in those patterns of attending church and and doing what you do all in the name of Jesus. Is it a terrible thing? No, it isn't. But comfort and ease, they bring about complacency. They have the ability to do so. Now, the ease of ministry and the favor of the community led to complacency towards the global mission and ministry of God. 
Jesus commanded, and I'm paraphrasing it, go therefore and make disciples of just Jerusalem. Kick back, have a good time, cruise control, let's do this. It'll be glorious. Well, that's not at all what Matthew 28 says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. He says a few other things, making disciples, teaching them to obey all that I commanded. And then in another gospel, it says, beginning in Jerusalem and moving out from there. So the command of Jesus is to go forth and make disciples of all nations. Start in Jerusalem. That's going to be your starting point. Then you're going to move out to Judea and Samaria and all these other places. It's going to go out throughout the whole world. Well, the question becomes then, how could the Lord's people make disciples in all nations while at the same time being camped out in comfort with their Jewish compadres in Jerusalem? They could not. I'd bet my life on this. I believe that if God had not ordained and brought forth that great persecution, the church would still be camped out in Jerusalem today, kicking back and joining itself at Solomon's portico. Well, that's a risky bet. You could die, Phil. No, I know human nature, and I know me. I know me. And I know the more comfortable I'm made, the less I will do, the less motivated I will do, the more blind I become, just the more tunnel vision I get just for my little comfort, my little zone. In fact, then you know that there's greater threats out there, and so now we switch to the default mode of not wanting to engage anywhere else because of the threats. Think about that for a moment. If this persecution hadn't arose, and it's stupid to ask hypotheticals because, but at the same time, well, God would have used something else to get him out. Yeah, okay, whatever. But don't you understand human nature yet? Don't you know you? Don't you know that if you're just left in comfort and luxury and easy ministry, that you'll pretty much cling to that for the rest of your existence? That's what we do. That is so what we do. They could not make disciples of all nations if they remained in Jerusalem. All of us err on the side of comfort. All of us are prone to complacency and apathy. I know I am. I've wrestled with that stuff my whole faith walk especially when it comes to the things of God. Especially when it comes to the things of God. All of us love comfort. All of us are prone to complacency. And the easier things are, the more susceptible we become to engaging in those things and clinging to them and even making them idols. Comfort, comfort, comfort. We live in a nation that says comfort, pain-free. You, you, you. It's a difficult mission field we live in because of the 3,000 ads we're pummeled with every day that say it's all about you, get your chill on, get your Maybelline, you look good, you need to look good. It's all about you, just focus on you, stay in your little realm, comfort, comfort, comfort. We're all susceptible and we're being pounded with that junk all day. Let's take it a little deeper. What ignited the persecution. Yeah, sure it was God, but what ignited it? What event? Didn't begin on its own, right? No, there was a catalyst. What ignited it? Was it the death of Stephen? No. 
persecution began before his death, it was the preaching of Stephen. The death played a part in it, but it was absolutely Stephen's preaching that ignited it. His preaching rocked those little synagogues, and his preaching rocked the Sanhedrin to its absolute core. It brought the religious leaders to the point of being enraged, out of control, murderous. Now, if God is sovereign over all things, as the Bible says repeatedly, then that means that he planned to use Stephen's preaching and death for his purposes. Not just um, his death, but even his preaching for his purposes. His preaching is what fired up the persecution to begin with. What fired up the persecution with Jesus? His preaching. Now, here's how it all comes together. This order will help to explain why Stephen is so important to the history of the church and to God's global plan. Uh, In a way, this is sort of Stephen's eulogy, minus the little details and pleasantries that are at funerals at times, and I really enjoy those things, but this would be that minus those things. In eternity past, God planned for the following things to happen. God planned for Stephen to be born. God planned for Stephen to be saved. God planned for Stephen to become a deacon and preacher. God planned for Stephen to be brought before the Sanhedrin. God planned for Stephen to be martyred. God planned to use Stephen's sermon and martyrdom to ignite persecution. God planned to use the persecution to disrupt and scatter the church so that it would begin to reach the rest of the world for Jesus Christ. All of this stuff was devised in eternity past. For the Christian, it's relatively easy for us to swallow the reality that God sent his son to die for many. But it's, that's conceivable to us. It's mysterious, but it's conceivable. But it seems to be inconceivable that God would shed the blood of his own children to accomplish the purpose of spreading the gospel and advancing his kingdom. Does it not? Right Immediately we get hinged up on that and think, he wouldn't do that to his children. Are you kidding me? He just did it in our passage. Willfully. And the spectacular thing is, is that it was Stephen's desire to lay down his life. Stephen wanted his blood to be the seed for global missions. It was his desire in his own heart, and it was the Father's plan. In light of these truths of God's sovereignty and how he orchestrated all of these things in eternity past and then brought them out into a reality 2,000 years ago, in light of these truths, we can never say that Stephen's life was cut short. We cannot. We can never say, what a waste of talent. He was a young man. What a great preacher. What a tragedy. We can't say that. We can't ask the question, how much more good could he have done if he were allowed to live a little longer? Can you imagine? Friends, hypothetical questions are worthless. They are nothing more than mere entertainment for our finite minds. Our God's plans are no doubt mysterious, mind-boggling, and even challenging at times. 
But we can all rest assured in knowing that he truly, truly, truly does work all things for the greater good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes. Stephen's death helped to spread the gospel throughout the Middle East. And from the Middle East, from the Middle East, the gospel spread throughout the rest of the world. Aren't you glad that the Father predestined to you Stephen this way? Amen! And when, these, when we see things happen in the world or in our own families and we lose people and all that, we ask all of those questions. The what ifs, the what ifs, what ifs. Why don't we start asking, what do you have behind this? Because if you're sovereign, you ordained it, God. As much as it hurts. I have experienced this firsthand in the loss of my mother-in-law. I loved her. She's a tremendous woman. She was saved by the mercy and grace of God before she went home to be with him. And praise the Lord, she went to be with him. And while she was being consumed, Gracious God (laughs) sent one of his children to minister to my wife. And my wife got saved. She had to deal with hell on earth because I didn't get saved for two years later, but I got saved. And God used how many people I've preached the gospel to. And just start thinking about this stuff. I'm not tooting my horn at all. I'm a moron. What I'm saying is, is that by his sovereign hand, plan, and will, he took a life to bring life to many. Oh, hallelujah. Aren't you blessed in knowing That God wastes nothing. Nothing. As I said, dying for the gospel was actually Stephen's desire. He preached to get himself killed. He wanted his own blood to be the seed of global evangelism. All of us should take great comfort and joy in knowing that things ultimately have happened for a reason and that our sovereign God uses them to achieve His purposes. God uses the good. God uses the bad. God uses the ugly of life to bring to fruition His plans which are all set to magnify His glory which is what radiates the everlasting joy of His people. Amen. Amen. God was behind all of it, friends. And he used these wicked men to achieve his purposes. They thought they were achieving their own purposes. (laughs) To some degree, I guess they did. But they didn't even know those were the purposes of God. Let's keep them alive. We just figured out that that's God's plan. That's what they would have done. They would have switched to that mode, right? 
Oh, if we kill them, it'll cause the church to explode and expand. We don't want to do that. Keep them alive. Give them the best food from the king's table. You know, that's just how Satan works. Now, think of this for a moment. Saul, before Saul was saved, he was being used by God to achieve God's purposes. He gave approval to Stephen's death, which had to happen. And then he spearheaded a persecution, which had to happen. Why? To drive the church out to reach the world. Saul's walking around doing his thing. Oh, kill them all. I'm doing a noble thing. He has no idea that he's being used by God at that moment to achieve God's purposes. Wow. Later, when he realizes it, he's crushed because he, he, didn't, he didn't feel worthy to call himself an apostle because of the persecution that he brought against God's church. But he was being used as a saved man, as an unsaved man. It's quite spectacular. Now, it's also noteworthy to identify, talk about a little bit, the two regions that the scattered Christians went to, Judea and Samaria. I'm also going to touch briefly on uh, why the apostles remained behind, because I really wrestled with that when I came across it. The Christians obviously fled Jerusalem because it was dangerous. But those who had gone into other parts of Judea were still at risk. Jerusalem was in Judea, and so were Bethany, Bethlehem, Hebron, and other towns, other places. Christians would not be safe in those places for very long. They were close to Jerusalem. They were in the same province, the same region, where the religious leaders could go out and Saul could go and do his thing. They would, however, be safe in Samaria... Pious Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. Samaria was, and I'll give some explanation, some of you already know these things, but Samaria was located about 40 miles north of Jerusalem, was the ancient capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. Uh, After nearly a century and a half of idolatry and rebellion against God, the city fell to the Assyrians under Shalmaneser V in 722 B.C. Uh, Samaria's downfall actually marked the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, Many of its people, many of the people from that region were resettled in other lands by the Assyrians who also located people from other nations in that region. The resulting mix of Jews and Gentile peoples became known as Samaritans. The Samaritans had a bizarre blend of Judaism and pagan religion. Uh, They feared the Lord but also worshipped their own gods. Uh, Samaritans believed in their hearts that they were true Jews, and that's pretty much why the Jerusalem Jews hated and avoided them. Um, Interestingly, however, though, interestingly, the Jewish aspects of Samaritan religion, the Judaism sort of aspects, were kind of blended into that, and that caused them to know and understand that there was a coming Messiah and to await for his arrival. So they were Jewish enough in Samaria to know that there's a Messiah coming, our deliverer. So they had that part of it down. They had all these other things goofed up, but they were awaiting a Messiah to come. Very interesting. Now, this is seen so clearly uh, through how the Samaritan woman at the well very quickly repented of her sin and believed in Jesus after he showed her who he was. The Bible says that many of her townspeople repented and believed as well. I mean, she asked the question, are you the one that's supposed to come? He said, yeah. And so they were very, very much aware that a Messiah was going to come. It was a safe place because of that. You know, if you came in there proclaiming the gospel and the coming kingdom and the Messiah has come, that was a, a message that would be received 
well in that particular region. It was safe because no pious Jew would go there. In fact, they carved out roadways that went around it so they could get up to Galilee and other places. I mean, they would literally travel all the way around this region because they didn't want to go anywhere near these people. They hated them. Very interesting here. That's a little background on Judea and, and Samaria. Now, why did the apostles remain in Jerusalem after the church fled? The first thing that came to mind is why didn't the shepherds go with the flock? They just bounced, and you guys are staying behind. That makes no sense to me. And I've read all kinds of commentaries, and some of them say the apostles were in disobedience. Okay, so what? You know, and I read other ones that were a little bit more friendly towards them, but I believe the reality is that there were still Christians that were left behind in, in Jerusalem. Not all of them left. It doesn't say every one of them left. It says they fled and scattered. There were still Christians left in Jerusalem. The apostles believed that they needed to continue to minister to those people. They needed to hold their, you know, hold down the fort. They needed to man their posts. And they believed that they were still supposed to proclaim the gospel to the Jews, that the appointed time had not come yet where God would move out from the Jews completely and go to other Gentile people. And so that's what they believed. That's why they remained behind. They stayed because, man, this is our objective. This is our mission. We need to stay here and do this. Now, if you read ahead in Acts down in probably 15 to 17, 19, somewhere in there, you'll see that they finally left Jerusalem and went out and, you know, this guy went down to this area, this guy went, they just, they took off. They were driven out of there. I think the persecution intensified to the point that they could not stay. One of them was martyred. I think it was James. But for the most part, in our text, they're staying foot because there's still ministry to do there. The Jews still need to hear the gospel and all of that. So it's a good thing. Let's look at two. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. It is doubtful that the men that buried Stephen were brothers in the Lord because the term devout is used to describe pious Jews in the New Testament rather than Christians. Uh, The text says that these men, so I think we can deduce that these were not Christian men. The text says that these uh, devout men made great lamentation over the death of Stephen. This is interesting because according to the Mishnah, it was unlawful for anyone to lament publicly over the death of an executed criminal. But their lamentation, their crying out over the loss of this man was very, very open, open to the point where we can see clearly that the great historian and author Luke of our text that we're reading, he was notified about it later on. Man, these guys went about and they were crying out loud over Stephen's loss. These guys essentially abandoned the Mishnah ordinances. These are the ordinances that they live by. This is where all that Pharisaical law was. They just forsook that stuff. Now, the text also implies that their lamentation was more like a public protest. The word great is translated mega in Greek, which can also mean important. The devout friends of Stephen, again, not believers, I think they were devout friends of the Jewish religion and of him, devout friends, they felt that his death was unjust, and they believed it was important for them to make that known and to clear his name. An executed criminal was held in the community as a disgrace for centuries at times. They would mark that down in their history books. They went about protesting and informing others. This was a good guy. This guy didn't do anything wrong. He was a beloved friend. Last week I mentioned how Jesus stood to vindicate Stephen just before his death. He stood from his throne to do that. We saw that in the text. In a way, Stephen's devout friends were seeking to vindicate his name throughout Jerusalem through making public lamentation. 
They put themselves at risk by breaking mission ordinances. Why'd they do all this? Because they loved Stephen. Why? Because Stephen shared the gospel with them. He had to. He was preaching Christ to them in love. And it had an impact on these guys. Now, they may not have pulled the trigger on faith, but this was a man who cared for them. They loved him enough to go out and risk their necks. It's really quite beautiful. Now, Luke contrasts Stephen's friends, these devout men, with Saul in verse 3. Look at it with me. But Saul was ravaging the church. These guys were weeping over the loss of Stephen on one side. And then it says, but Saul was ravaging the church, entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. What a contrast. This happens in Scripture all the time. An author will say, this is the good stuff that was happening. And then this stunk. Look at this. Look what's going on here. This is what he's doing. While these devout men were lamenting over the loss of their friend, another man began a citywide campaign to imprison the followers of Jesus of Nazareth. It says Saul was ravaging the church. Ravaging appears only here in the New Testament, and it means to severely injure, to destroy, to damage, to ruin. In extra-biblical writings, this particular term was used, this Greek phrase was used to describe the destruction of a city. Saul literally tore the church apart. This was an act, as I mentioned, that would later haunt him for the rest of his life. After being saved, several passages in the New Testament show that he felt utterly unworthy to be called an apostle. Why? Because he approved of Stephen's death and he went house to house looking for Christians to put them in prison. He really regretted that later on when he was saved and in Christ. Now notice how he did not discriminate. It says he dragged away both men and women. This was very uncommon. It was very common to put men in prison for religious issues and different things, but never common to put women in prison over any issue. Women were not imprisoned, especially over religious matters. But what we see here, the reality, he drug away men and women. This describes his zeal against the church. I'll throw anyone in prison who claims Jesus of Nazareth. This guy was zealous, was he not? Very zealous against the church. Through men and women in prison. Look at 4 and 5. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. I love that. Oh, they went hiding. No, they went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. When the Christians left Jerusalem and entered new towns, they preached the word. And when Philip left, he went to Samaria and proclaimed Christ. You see the difference there. There's a difference between how the Christians preached the gospel and how Philip did. They preached, he proclaimed. Preaching in verse 4 means evangelism in the Greek. Evangelism essentially means to bring the good news of the gospel to others. Evangelism is typically done through regular conversation and relationship. Martin Lloyd-Jones said something cool here about this. He said that the early Christians, when they scattered, they went about gossiping the gospel. Not saying, do you know what the gospel did the other day? You know, not that kind of, I'm in the hair boutique and I'm an older woman and I'm hammering all the other ladies at the bingo hall. Not that kind of gossip, Right? It was just talking about Jesus and the gospel and the work that he had done and the cross and these things in 
average common conversation, went they, where they went to the market, where they went into other people's homes, where they went and had fellowship and dinner with people. They just talked about Jesus. Jesus was always on their lips. They just gossiped him. You know the Lord? You heard about what happened in Jerusalem? Have you heard about Jesus? I mean, they were just talking about him all the time. He was always on their lips. Jesus was present in their conversations. So preaching here, what they were doing, is a little different than what we're used to. These believers were not standing in pulpits preaching the gospel like, you know, Colby and John MacArthur. And I, those two are very close and similar. You know, they weren't like Cameron, what he does or what I do or what Countryman does over there or what this guy does over here. It was different. It wasn't that. They weren't in pulpits preaching. They were just sharing Jesus in conversation. That's what it means. Now, Philip was doing something vastly different from what they were doing. Before I define what he did, I'd like to talk about him a little bit. Who is this Philip? This was not the apostle Philip. He was still back in Jerusalem. This Philip was one of the men chosen to serve as a deacon alongside of Stephen. And like Stephen, Philip, and this is rare for a deacon to have these gifts, but like Stephen, Philip also had the gifts of preaching and miracles. With that being said, Philip went into Samaria and proclaimed the Christ. Proclaimed means to herald the gospel or to announce it as a public messenger. Jesus proclaimed the gospel this way, and so did John the Baptist, the apostles, Stephen, and later the apostle Paul. Philip would be like one of today's pulpit preachers or like a pastor of a church who proclaims the gospel each week with the exception that he performed lots of real miracles, not any of that Benny Hinn trash you see on TV. This guy was very, I mean, my name's Philip. I don't do Benny Hinn miracles for sure. I don't do other miracles I never have, but I proclaim the gospel each week. That's what kind of preacher he was. You see the difference between what the regular Christians were doing and what he was doing? He was preaching to masses in Samaria. Big, big, big difference. Now, what happens is people tend to take the fact that the scattered church was preaching, and now they say anyone can preach in the traditional manner and stand in pulpits, women, other men who aren't supposed to do it and all this stuff, they take it and they broaden it out because that's what they were doing. If you look at it in the original language, it doesn't mean public proclamation. You get these things wrong and you just open yourself up to trouble. Now, I'm not saying for a moment that women aren't gifted and talented. They are. Man, are you kidding me? I'd be a big toad without my wife. But there is a difference. They were not doing what I'm doing. Okay? Very clear. We've got to be so clear on this because people take this stuff and they run crazy with it and start justifying their positions and everything. Preachers are, there's not supposed to be so many of them. Let's put it that way. Guys who really stand in the pulpit and proclaim the gospel. It's not a rare thing, but it's not as common as just Christians gossiping it. Very important. And MacArthur wrote like six pages on that because obviously he gets all hot and heavy over that and I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to quote everything he said about it, but man, there is a difference between what you see happening here. What you see happening, major, major difference. Look at 6 and 7. And the crowds, okay, we're talking about Samaria here. These are the Samaritan people. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. 
For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. Sounds a lot like what the apostles were working. Sounds a lot like the things that Jesus did when he proclaimed the gospel. People were getting healed too and all of these things. Big difference. Doesn't say these things in reference to what the normal Christians were doing. They were gossiping. That doesn't mean people weren't being impacted by the gospel. No way they were. Big difference here. When, when this man, Philip, stood up and proclaimed, he backed what he was saying with miracles. He did things that he was empowered to do. The apostles were empowered to do. Now it says that the people were, when he proclaimed and did his ministry, they were pretty much laser locked on him. Altogether, all, one accord it says, altogether they listened and paid a close attention to him. The text paints a bit of a picture of them being or hanging on his every word. They were really locked in. That was a very ripe and fertile missions field. They were expecting a Messiah. Jesus had gone there beforehand and done ministry there. A town got saved. A woman got saved. This was a place that was ready to hear the gospel and ready to receive it. Every miracle that Philip performed affirmed his message about Jesus of Nazareth. Verse 7 also says that Philip was an exorcist. He cast out unclean spirits. And when he did, they left with a shriek. They cried out with a loud voice. We saw that when Jesus did the same thing in synagogues, that evil spirits would come out and shriek and scream and cry out. They'd go look for another host. Jesus foretold in Mark 16, 17, I had Trish read part of it earlier, that the miraculous ability to exercise demons would accompany those who believe. MacArthur agrees, but says that that gift ended with the apostolic error or era. I, he could be right. Now, what was the result? And this is where the rubber meets the road, man. What was the result of Philip's gospel preaching and legitimate miracle working? Conversions and joy. Look at the rest, our last verse with me, verse 8. It says, so there was much joy in that city. I know the verse doesn't say there was a lot of conversions and much joy in that city, but if you look at joy in the Greek, you'll see that it's that joy, it's very specific. It's the joy that can only come from salvation in the Lord's presence. It is that or was that great unspeakable joy that the Bible talks about. It is the same joy that the Ethiopian eunuch experienced after he got saved and baptized, Acts 8.39, can't wait to get there. It is the same joy that the apostles experienced when the Lord returned to them from the cross and grave, John 16.22. Now this joy was very foreign to the Samaritan people. They had a long history of idolatry, false religion, and spiritual bondage under Satan, and then Philip came with the gospel, which is the light of God, and that light illuminated the hearts of many. Those who repented of their sin and placed their faith and trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ were filled with unspeakable joy. There were so many converts in that community that Luke literally writes that there was much, much joy in that town why lots of people were being saved each person perpetuates joy 
Oh, it emits from them. It comes out of them. I've been released from sin and bondage and death and hell and condemnation and guilt. And what does the Lord put in place of those things? His incredible Holy Spirit, which brings incredible, unspeakable joy to the point where the whole city was filled with Christians, filled with joy. What a spectacular thing that's happening here. The joy reached the level of great. Some translations say great joy was in that city. Uh, in ending, I'd like to read you an excerpt from Spurgeon's, one of his sermons, but it was his sermon on Acts 8.8. 8. And uh, I think that any time we can read Spurgeon or have him read publicly like this, it's such a treat because the man was a real man of God. The sermon was preached at the Metropolitan Tabernacle on January 22, 1888. This is just a chunk of it. He just describes why there was joy in the city. It's spectacular. Listen to this. There was joy in Samaria because the gospel was preached there. If men did but know it, the greatest gift a city can have is to have the gospel preached in it. Remember the old motto of the city of Glasgow. Let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word. No city flourishes so well as that which has a clear, powerful gospel bell ringing in the midst of it. It is a famishing city which has not the bread of life, but it is a flourishing city which has the bread of life freely dispensed from the pulpit every Sabbath by loving hands. But there was still more joy in Samaria because there were signs of blessing going with the gospel. Unclean spirits were driven out of those who had been possessed by them and lame and paralyzed persons were made to walk. We work no such miracles now in the physical world, but we work them in the spiritual realm. Out of many men have we seen the evil spirits go as the cup of devils has been abandoned Filthy blasphemy has been given up and their speech has been seasoned with salt. Fornication has been forsaken. Uncleanness of life has been hated and left. Theft and dishonesty of every kind have become detestable. We have seen these miracles worked again and again. We have some among us at this time to whom we might say, and, and such were some of you, but you were washed. The gospel has washed, cleansed, and changed them. And it is going to do the same for others. For Jesus Christ has come to cast unclean spirits out of those who are possessed by them. And to make some receive divine strength who have up till now been palsied so far as any holy action is concerned. That they may henceforth run gladly in the ways of God and give up their whole lives to his service and to his glory. Oh, that it may be so with many here today. If it is so, there will be great joy in this city. Once more, there was great joy in Samaria because so many believed and were saved. He that believes that in Jesus Christ is saved. 
The moment that he believes his nature is changed, his sins are forgiven, and his heart is renewed. This great work is done in a moment, but it is never undone. The new life commences with the miraculous, regenerating work of the Holy Spirit, and that miracle is of such a character that it continues to thrill throughout the entire man until at last he is brought safely to heaven, made perfectly like his Lord Jesus Christ. There was... Also great joy in Samaria because of the changed lives of those who believed. When a man is converted, he does not doubt the power of, power of the gospel that converted him. And when men see the changed lives of well-known sinners, they are made to believe that the gospel that works such transformations must be true. If they doubt it, they do so in the teeth of the most plain evidence. If our preaching does not turn men from drunkenness to sobriety, from thieving to honesty, from unchastity to purity, then our gospel is not worth a button. But if it does all this, then this shall be the evidence that it comes from God, seeing that in the world so sorely diseased by sin, it works the wondrous miracle of curing men of these deadly evils. Oh, my dear friends, what a happy city Samaria was when it was full of men healed, saved, converted, and rejoicing in Christ. Amen. I couldn't agree more. That's why I had to read it. Spurgeon's desire and prayer for London is our desire and prayer for Modesto, Ripon, Keys, Escalon, and so on and so forth. I'd like to close our time with a question. Do you have this unspeakable joy? There's only one way to it, one truth that promises it, and one life that guarantees it. Jesus said he is the way. He said he is the truth. He said he is the life. Jesus is the world's only hope for deliverance from the bondages of sin and its hopelessness, agony, despair, and condemnation. If you have yet to repent of your sins and believe in the Lord Jesus, I beckon you to do so now. Pray to Him. Throw yourself before His throne of grace. Plead for pardon. He will forgive and save you. He will cast out your demons. He will give you His Spirit so that you may live for Him. And He will give you unspeakable joy. For those of us that do believe, may our hope and faith be strengthened by what we've heard today. May the certainty of God's sovereignty and great love for us ignite flames of passion for his cause in our communities. May we become emboldened to gossip the gospel. And for many of us, or for some of us, maybe a smaller handful, to proclaim the gospel. May we also continue to cry out to the Lord through prayer. What shall we cry out? Take this place for yourself, Lord Jesus. Save these people from their sins. 
Make them a holy people unto yourself.